The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a great show tonight, folks. You know, we're going to be looking at the JFK assassination tonight. Now, few people have the elk that our guest tonight has. Few people have impacted the research on the JFK assassination as much as our guest tonight. And our guest is none other than Joan Mellon. That's right, folks. Wait here. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Set in that comf- comfy chair. Kick back. Relax. We're going to take you on a wonderful ride tonight. Joan's got a new book out called Faustian Bargains. Lyndon Johnson, Mac Wallace, and the Robber Baron Culture in Texas. Perhaps no president has had a more ambiguous reputation than LBJ. He maneuvered colleagues and turned bills into law better than anyone. He was trailed by a legacy of underhanded dealings from his stolen Senate election in 1948, all the way to kickbacks from deals, folks, with Texas Wheeler dealer, you'll know this name, Billy Solestis, and defense contractors like Brown and Root. Now, on the verge of investigation, Johnson lucked out if you will, and was reprieved when he became president. The second JFK was assassinated. Now, among the remaining mysteries about Johnson has been LBJ's relationship to Mac Wallace. Mac Wallace, in 1951, folks, shot a Texas man, are you ready for this, who was having an affair with none other than Johnson's very own sister, Josepha. Now, Josepha at the time was also Mac Wallace's lover. When Mac Wallace was arrested, he very coolly stated, I work for Johnson. I need to get back to Washington. Johnson's own lawyer, John Cofer, defended Wallace on that murder charge. Now get this, folks. Wallace ended up being convicted of murder. But are you ready for this? He received a suspended sentence. Uh Uh-huh. But wait, doesn't... Gets better, folks. It doesn't end there. When Wallace was able to get a high security clearance from LBJ's friend and defense contractor, D.H. Byrd, the Office of Naval Intelligence tried for 11 years to get it revoked, all without any success. 
Something going on there? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Using Crucial Life Magazine and Naval Intelligence files and the unredacted FBI files on Mac Wallace himself, never before utilized by others, investigative writer Joan Mellon skillfully connects these two disparate Texas lives and lends stark credence to the dark side of Lyndon Johnson that has largely gone unstantiated. Joan Mellon is a professor at Temple University and has authored an amazing 22 books. Joan, how do you do it? That's like a book a year, isn't it? I wonder sometimes. I'm numb. I'm tired. I'm writing a book about the USS Liberty right now. But oh, okay. In which Johnson played a, a huge part in that. Drum, yeah. Okay, we're going to have to deal just with that too. The book better than I could. I could just stop now. <laughs> <laughs> you really hit all the high points. Excellent, including all the nuances, the D.H. Byrd, the security clearance, the Office of Naval Intelligence files. It was very hard, even for the uh, the person whose files I used originally for Mac Wallace was a Dallas policeman named John Fraser Harrison, J. Harrison. And Harrison somehow, somehow collaborating with Barr McClellan, who wrote a book called Power, Money, and something that uh, he got, they got the bee in their bonnet that it was Mac Wallace's fingerprint that was on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, the one unidentified print in the hands of the Warren Commission. And they decided that that there, so if we have Mac Wallace's print up there and we can prove it, then we can connect Johnson to the planning of the Kennedy assassination, which seems to be in everybody's mind, and it certainly seems it's very hard to believe that he didn't have prior knowledge of the foreknowledge of the Kennedy assassination, and we can't prove that he was he was, certainly wasn't there, but uh, it's it's certainly been a question. You, you, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Maybe. No, no, that's fine. But, but um, folks, just to give you some context, that fingerprint um, was allegedly found on one of the boxes that was used to prop up uh, a, a type of sniper's nest in the sixth floor Texas School Book Depository. Right. And, of course, we should add, just for the background, that the uh, School Book Depository, was that building, was owned by D.H. Byrd, uh, for whom Mac Wallace was used to, had been working. And then when Mac Wallace moved on to Ling Electronics, Ling had joined with Temco uh, uh, and Chance for... That's uh, uh, D.H. Byrd's company. So he was still connected to Byrd, even though he moved to California and was working for James Ling of Ling Electronics. So uh, that the first, well, I, since I was writing about Mac Wallace, it seemed to me important not to rely on previous evidence of whether that fingerprint was Mac Wallace's. And so I redid the investigation that they had that Jay Harrison had done, mm-hmm. and uh, Jay Harrison had in his hands. The Austin, which was hard to get for him even then, the Austin police fingerprints that were taken when Mac Wallace was arrested for the murder of Kinzer. And they were very smeared because the people were very sloppy in Austin. They did not wipe off the uh, roller when they did hit from the previous suspect when they did Mac Wallace's fingerprint. So it was not a clear fingerprint. I had an advantage. More time had elapsed and the U.S. military records were now available and I was able to get the Navy fingerprints because when Mac Wallace joined the U.S. Marines in 1939, the Navy took his prints. Marines and Navy being synonymous there. So I had good prints. 
from St. Louis, the military, the uh, National Archives in St. Louis, which has military records. So I had two sets, Austin, I had the Navy, and then, of course, the unidentified print that's in the hands of the National Archives, and that was taken in a photograph by the FBI on the day of the Kennedy assassination, and they're pretty good. So, they're th so those three, and I hired a forensic fingerprint examiner who was an officer of the, of the organization that certified print examiners. I didn't know. I just got him off the Internet, and it turned out that he had that credential, which, will fig which figures in this. So uh, he had been a police officer, and then he went and had studied at Quantico at the FBI facilities, and I, and he didn't like. He wanted a pristine photograph of the original, the Warren Commission print, the unidentified print. But I got it. The national they gave it. The National Archives provided a terrific print. That was because the FBI took a terrific print. Now we had the three. And so his name was Bob Garrett, and he went away with all this material, including J.R. Harrison's files and the findings of the previous examiners. And I have to say, maybe it was a little disappointing to me and to the publisher, Bloomsbury, to find out that that was not, they did not match. Did. The Navy and the Austin print matched, mm -hmm. but the, what they did not, none of them matched with the one in the National Archives FB, um, Warren Commission papers. So he wasn't there. If that's your evidence that Mac Wallace was up there, he wasn't. Now what are we going to do? Well, we, if we're going to connect uh, Johnson to, to foreknowledge of the Kennedy assassination, we're not going to do it on that fingerprint. Can't John, can I just interrupt you just for one yes. quick second, and we'll finish up with the fingerprints? That unidentified fingerprint, has it ever been linked to Lee Harvey Oswald? Oh, oh no! They, they of course they tested they tried it, right? And they it, tested every employee of the book depository, and it they turned out negative police, in every case. Everybody that could have been there, yes. Okay, thank you, Joan. Sorry to interrupt you. So now, what? So that just added to it. I have to say, now that doesn't mean Mac Wallace was a saint. It doesn't mean that he didn't know Johnson because he did. It doesn't mean that Johnson was not behind the suspended sentence that you referred to, Brent. It doesn't mean that Johnson didn't secure the security, the secret. He had a, a security clearance at the level of secret. It didn't mean that uh, Johnson wasn't responsible for that. You cannot find a trace of that. And the organization that certifies people to work for defense contractors called DISCO was not in existence in 1952 at the time of the Wallace trial. I called them. I, so we can't trace back how he actually got it. And I couldn't, I, you know, so you win some, you lose some. I could not get Johnson. Johnson was wily. Holland McCombs, did, who was the journalist for Life magazine, who did the big investigation of Johnson for life that was going to be published but wasn't when President Kennedy was killed, uh, he found, as he, he was a Texan, he had a ranch in Texas, and he went around and he talked to many, many people. Nobody allowed him to use their names. He couldn't, Johnson's name, he looked in all the financial records, real estate records, ownership of stocks. Johnson's name is nowhere. He, had, he could keep his name out of everything. He used these deputy sheriffs and various uh, people that did his dirty work for him in Texas. And also Cliff Carter. He had a right-hand man on the ground in Texas who was a soda bottler in Bryan, Texas. And he had uh, whatever, and he just, he, he, he could never be, he always had intermediaries, except for one instance. And I, this is was sort of out of context, but Johnson was obsessed with Billy Celeste. He was terrified that he would, 
his name would come up in in the scandals involving the scams and theft and all that stuff about Billy Celestes. And so there was uh, Billy Celestes was scheduled to meet in in a, the town. God, I can't remember the name. It's okay. Some town. And uh, Johnson hires a deputy sheriff to hire a private investigator to spy on Billy Celestes and uh, this Republican. Uh, uh, apparatchik from politics that he was going to be talking to Billy Celestes. And Johnson wanted to know what Billy Celestes was saying to this guy. So he hires this PI, only Billy Celestes doesn't show up. So the man, had, the deputy sheriff, writes a letter to Johnson saying, and a reporter called Mike Cox in Texas found this material. He said, I'm really sorry, but I have to send you a bill whatever, several hundred dollars, even though Billy Celestes didn't show up. Well, there's, that's, that's on the record. And uh, that Johnson couldn't, somehow couldn't destroy that, and we have, we have that letter. What, so, is a, what is Billy Celestes' character, just for folks that are unaware? Billy Celestes was a farmer, a very strange individual, but uh, clever. He had scams. He had scams from the time he was eight years old. He sold cattle. He sold things. He, he bought cotton allotments from farmers. These farmers had uh, given up their land on eminent domain. The, the government wanted their land for some reason. Then he, he, then they, but they kept the cotton allotment, and that's, a, that's an asset. He, they sold these cotton allotments to Billy Celestes. He then took mortgages back, and then they agreed, the farmers and Billy Saul, that, uh, that they would default, and then they would get some money. He tried to corner the market and a certain uh, fertilizer, and uh, he undersold all the other fertilizer distributors to the farmers. Like, they, they were charging $80. He charged for whatever the... He charged $20. So then he had to make big loans from various companies in order to pay for this. And there was another side of that, too. The cotton allotments, the, the fertilizer, and then he was storing grain, government-owned grain, in storage elevators. But he didn't have store. He only had a few storage elevators. And he got cereal, like little plates that give a number for the elevator. And then he'd move them from place to place if the inspectors came around to look at them. And, John, and he made huge campaign contributions to... Lyndon Johnson, and also to Senator Ralph Yarborough. Now, one of the things in Texas, as in Louisiana, you can collect campaign contributions even though you're not running for office. Get out. In general, any time, you can, you can collect campaign contributions. And I learned this when I was working with, on the Garrison case, because in Louisiana you could do it also. Holy so it's a great source of graft and money and bribes and whatnot. Now, so what was Johnson's relationship with Billy in the beginning? Johnson's with... relationship with Billy Celestes. Billy Celestes would hand over cash, huge amounts of cash, for to Johnson. He did what to do with what he will, and uh, Johnson gave the uh, government endorsement. He gave him the grain. You have to get that grain. You and I can't walk in there and say, "How about giving us some grain to store?" He created. Uh, he he made all of that possible, uh-huh. and this whole thing comes to a head. Because there's a an honest agriculture official down there in Picos, Texas, which is where Billy Celestes was, and he didn't want to sign. He had to sign off on all the each time one of those allotments was sold and the mortgages, and he decided he didn't want to do it. So Billy Celestes, with Johnson behind him, tried to bribe this man was called Henry Marshall, and he tried to 
uh, Billy Celeste's try to bribe him with a job at the, he said, you can go to Washington, D.C. and work for the Agriculture Department. And Henry Marshall said, no, he liked living in rural Texas. Then Billy Celeste said, we'll get you a job in Brazil, get you a, a gig in Brazil. No, he didn't want that either. He said no. And he was coming to New York, not to, sorry, to Washington, D.C. on June, Monday, the Monday of the weekend, June whatever, 5th, first week of June. And on Saturday, he's killed on his ranch in Bryan, Texas. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yes. And so this whole thing and the, the sheriff in the area, he's already in. He knows about what to do. So as soon as he comes to the body, he, he says suicide. It's obviously a suicide. And they rule suicide. But the family of Henry Marshall is very upset because he, he, he was not a suicidal or unhappy or anything. And so a year later, they have an inquest and they have and they lie again and they say it's they endorse that it was a suicide. But this is becomes an, and then many people die who are involved with Billy Celeste's in his scams and they start to die. One was his ag accountant. Another one, what, what all these people, one after another, maybe six or seven people mysteriously die and they rule carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, when Henry Marshall was shot, he was uh, shot with uh, one of these rifles where you have to turn it around and uh, to, to uh, get it ready to shoot again. He shoots himself, and then how could he have turned it around and shot it again and so forth? And then they try carbon monoxide, and his lungs have maybe 30% carbon monoxide, but somehow that doesn't work. And they turn the ignition on in the truck. It doesn't work. The, the truck is washed shortly thereafter, That's another within a day. And so there are no fingerprints taken, no blood samples taken. No, There's no forensic evidence whatsoever. Wow. Joan, do you think Johnson is cognizant of what's taking place right yes, under it? Absolutely, because he telephones. When the inquest was held, he mm -hmm. telephoned the judge every day. But, you know, the Kennedys also telephoned the judge. They were very interested in what was going on with Johnson, particularly Bobby Kennedy, whom, as we know, wanted to get Johnson off the 1964 ticket. As well, he might. <laughs> he never liked him being there in the first place. What a mistake that was. So uh, he, they, Bobby Kennedy calls, the president calls, the Johnson people call, Johnson personally calls the judge, and finally the judge just aborts the inquest and they rule. And, but finally, years later... So this is taking place in 63, right? This is taking place in 62, 62. Okay. Henry Marshall was shot in 61. The inquest is in 62. Okay. In 63, 64, Billy Celestes goes to jail for a nice long time. And when he gets, he has federal, uh, he has uh, transporting chattel mortgages across the state lines, all, all kinds of fraud charges. And he gets, he goes to jail both on the state and on federal charges. And then, and that's like seven years. I, I can't recall the exact amount. He comes out. And then he gets involved in various scams more. And he gets up in court. He testifies the second time that he's arrested. And he said, I have to confess, I, I'm, a, I'm a bragger and a liar to the, to, the whole, to the whole courtroom. He goes to jail for another few years. And when he comes out, and by the time all this happens, he comes out in late 1983. And he decides, I think, this is now, this is the, there's something in your opening in which you say, there's a time for speculation. Yes. We can't answer. I don't know who says it, but you know, there you can't. We can't answer. With a pitch shifter. <laughs> <laughs> we can't answer every question, 
But what was in Billy Celeste's mind? Having stood there in prison, he talked about in his memoirs, he talks about me making friends with mafia people. And yeah, the, I was going to ask you that. And all of this. Yeah. And the, he calls them the Italians. He comes out in late 1983 and he heads straight for the town where Henry Marshall was killed. And he goes to the district attorney. At that time, his name was John Pascal. And he wants to testify. He wants to talk. So they have to make a deal. And they made a deal that he could have immunity only on the Henry Marshall murder, not on all the other murders, you know, as I mentioned, that were people connected with Estes. So Estes goes into the grand jury, and it's all, sh- all the reporters are there, and the, the district attorney gives his, his chief investigator a tape recorder, and they tape Billy Saul Estes and hand it out to the press, which is really, it's illegal. The grand jury is supposed to be secret. This was not secret. And he started, And what the main point of Billy Celeste's testimony was that, let me get this straight, in 1960, right after the Kennedy inauguration and Johnson inauguration, mm-hmm. Johnson meets in his backyard with his, his right-hand man, Cliff Carter, with Mac Wallace and, who is, and Billy Celeste's, and they plan the murder of Henry Marshall. He has to go. He has to be killed. And that's he. So he's accusing the president. Had, well, Johnson is dead by now. I should say. Here's Billy Celeste's testifying, but by now Cliff Carter is dead, Mac Wallace is dead, and Johnson is dead. So they're not there to say to d- deny it or to say anything or for, or for any evidence or anything. And that was just Billy Celeste's first salvo. The next thing he did was hire a lawyer named Doug Caddy, who had represented several of the Watergate burglars. And uh, including, he knew E. Howard Hunt quite well. And he uh, went to the Justice Department and said that Billy Celestes is accusing these people, Lyndon Johnson, Mac Wallace, and Carter, of of seven, ultimately, first it was seven murders, 11 murders, and ultimately went down to seven, up to 17 murders, and it included Johnson's sister. You pronounce it Josefa. Josefa? Yeah, I, I thought that's what it was pronounced as, but I probably... No, <laughs> no Saifa. Anyway, she, her too. Although she died on a Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, I think 1961, the very year. And the, as she was at a Christmas Eve party at the LBJ Ranch. Mm-hmm. The only other guests were Johnson and Lady Bird, John Connolly and his wife, and Josefa, Josefa and her husband. So Mac Wallace wasn't even there. You can't very well, he was to murder her. And then she goes home and dies in bed. So when Mac, when Hollis McCombs was doing his investigation for Life magazine, this is so wild. He was incredulous. He said, Josefa died? Question mark in his notes. Uh, you know, how did, well, how, what? And then they changed in the press. They changed the cause of death. First it was a heart attack. Then it was a brain hemorrhage. And she was put in the ground this, like the same day or the day after. No uh, autopsy. No, uh, and I think someone told me that she wasn't even examined by the doctor who signed the death certificate. Son of a gun. Okay. (laughs) I've got to come back to Mr. Johnson because people are going to want to know, did he sign off on the murder, the guy who was the agricultural fellow? Oh, Henry Marshall. No, you see, because we only have Billy Celeste's word on that. Okay. And other proof. Mac Wallace, you see, then I do a whole, st- my book is a lot, has a lot, the whole life of Mac Wallace in it, 
I try to look under every stone, under every rock. What did he actually do for Johnson? If Johnson got him the job with D.H. Byrd, mm -hmm. that's speculation. We can't prove it, but it certainly seems likely. 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 Because if yeah. you look in the LBJ library, you see a huge file of correspondence between Johnson and D.H. Byrd, including Johnson getting contracts for... Byrd was involved with a lot of aviation, planes that he was building for Tempo, and so forth. Now... What did Mac Wallace do for Johnson? That and Johnson got him the security clearance, as we discussed. Yeah. So what did Johnson? What did Mac Wallace do for Johnson? And he did. And I found some evidence because Holland McCombs, Holland McCombs's notebooks are available. So he's checking out. Bill, Billy Celestes has mentioned, mentioned Wallace once. What did? He, but I couldn't find the answer to that. Really, a satisfactory answer. Hmm. I. I certainly cannot prove that Mac Wallace murdered all those people that were that were caught up in the Billy Celesti scams. I can't prove that he murdered John F. Kennedy because I don't have the and nobody has that fingerprint. So what did he do exactly? Why did Wall Johnson help Wallace? Was it money or something? Was he laundering now, money? One from of the things that they tried to do at the Kinzer trial was to keep Josefa's name out of it, and so. In the you don't there's no transcript of the trial because huh. the person who did the, the clerk who did the transcript uh, uh, said well there was no appeal so I threw it all away oh. so by the time there was an investigation he had thrown it they they tore down the courthouse whatever there, there's no transcript there's no, there are only notes newspaper articles things like that so I, I, there is room for speculation. And I have, and uh, it seems I have to say. Let me just throw one other thing in. Less than a day after the Kennedy assassination, Johnson, I think it's the twenty-third of November, in the early morning, like four a.m. Johnson is lying in bed, and he has around him various acolytes like Jack Valenti, I think, and a bunch of those, and he starts outlining the policies of the Great Society mm -hmm. and what he's going to do, and he's going to put Kennedy's policies into practice well my goodness he's ready how does he know to get ready all details so fast a day not even a day after the kennedy assassination he was prepared yeah it's not even a day because kennedy he's just gotten off the plane That's virtually right. it's not even a day yeah. now it's circumstantial evidence and i wrote in one book did i wrote where did i, I don't know maybe in this faustian bargains i wrote uh circumstantial evidence is evidence in the court, it's not, you don't always have direct evidence. You don't have a confession or a witness, but that's that's the evidence. Oh, then they got very upset in the Kirkus. You know the Kirkus reviews. Mm -hmm. it's, oh, but that that's not really. It, but it is true. I think in the law books that I've read, because I'm very interested in circumstantial evidence, it's evidence. Now we throw in another piece of evidence, and that I'm sure you know is Madeline Brown. Thank you. I was just going to ask you about her <laughs> because Madeline Brown was a girl a lover of Lyndon Johnson she had a child with Lyndon Johnson can can is there proof to that now at this it's point have proof because a lawyer that worked for Johnson named Jerome Ragsdale mm -hmm. worked also for the KTBC radio station of Johnson there's a letter extant that is from Ragsdale to Madeline Brown saying don't worry we'll take care of you you know and uh. and Johnson will take care of you i think it was after Johnson's death so he, she was going to be supported. I think it was about, but this, 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 that that letter is out there. So then we could say that that's proof that she had the affair with Johnson. 
many people saw them. It's they, they weren't invisible. Although she later accused Mac Wallace of killing her nanny because the nanny saw her with Johnson. Now, I don't have any evidence for that except her. Now, so Madeline Brown, in the height of her relationship with Johnson, describes a party on the evening before the Kennedy assassination in which there are many luminaries. Mm -hmm. And Johnson disappears with behind closed doors for a while. And he comes out and he says to her, after tomorrow, which would be November 22nd, the day of the assassination, the Kennedys will never bother me again. Something like that's pretty close paraphrase of that. So well, they won't humiliate me, whatever they, they won't. So this suggests she thought, took that as meaning he had foreknowledge of the Kennedy assassination. Is there any other reason that that could have been said at that point? Is there any other connotation that could be associated? None at all. I know of, not that I know of. Okay. But the thing about Madeline Brown's story, she told this to many, many people, many writers, many videos, and she changes the guest list every time she tells the story. And one time she even put a very unlikely participant called George Rufus Brown. Now, George Rufus Brown was very straight-laced. He's, he's one of the Browns of Brown and Root. He's one of the brothers. The one was called Herman and one was George. George was the one that was particularly close to Johnson. That is true. And he, one time he said, I love you and I will do everything I, you want me to do. And another time that somebody else said that he called him every day of his life. They could talk to each other on the phone every day. I mean, he was in tight. He was the senator from Brown and Root. Even Robert Caro describes that. And there's no doubt about that. And Brown and Root folks later became, well, they were bought out by Halliburton. Well, Brown and Root did, by the way, they were the superb construction company. I have to give them, we have to say this, and I, when yeah, Hurricane Katrina came to New Orleans, mm -hmm. there's a bridge, if you've ever been, have you ever been to New Orleans? No, I haven't. I'd love to. There's a 24-mile span, two spans, one going one way, one going the other. Of course, Lake Pontchartrain. Right. And uh, it's 20, you can't, when you're on the middle of it, I've been there often because I was running about Garrison. Mm -hmm. When you're on the middle of it, you can't see land. It looks like you're in the Atlantic Ocean, and it's the water is right under the car wheels, practically. It's like a little narrow strip. And after Hurricane Katrina, everything broke in New Orleans. The yeah. bridges over the Mississippi cracked. Everything's cracking. The buildings are cracking. Not a crack in these two spans. It's called the Causeway Bridge, built by Brown and Root. That's because Hoffa was holding it up. No, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding, folks. I'm kidding. Well, they built a similar span in Vietnam. When they were later, but uh, and and they build it up. They build these things on land and then put them in the water. I don't know how they, but they that they there was superb construction people. Okay. Now, now, just just to let folks know, and, and you can verify this. I was always under the impression too that Johnson gave them that contract for Vietnam, and it was quite um, a lucrative contract. Is there truth in that as well? It was kind of a. You're my buddies. I don't know. I don't have. There was a great article in Ramparts magazine, for those old enough to remember Ramparts, called about uh, Brown and Root and, and Lyndon Johnson and okay. the Vietnam contracts. So right. that's, uh, and they got the lion's share. You know, they, there are other companies too. There was Bechtel, there was whatever, General mm -hmm. Bell Helicopter had yeah. a Vietnam, yeah. but they had the most by far. Okay. And they're, but now the thing that happened, well, Herman Brown died in December of 1962. And uh, this, George did not sign off on the contract with Halliburton 
until after his brother's death. They were, you know, and he stayed with the company, but of course he didn't really have a great power in the company anymore once he signed it over and became part of, Brown and Root became part of Halliburton. And it's Halliburton, under the, under the umbrella of Halliburton that they have the Vietnam contracts. But Johnson is there, and of course uh, George Brown is, is, is still there at that time. So Let's they, go back to Madeline Brown. Any idea, if we were to take her at face value, that, and I, I think it's credible that she had a child out of wedlock with Mr. Johnson. How do we take at face value then um, what she's telling us about that meeting that took place November 21st, the night before, when she keeps, ch- she had Nixon there at one point and all kinds of people. She had Hoover there. Hoover there, that's true too, Hoover. I forgot about that. Yeah. He was at his desk the next morning in uh, Washington, D.C. So... I don't know. What do you think, Joan? What do you, what's your perspective? Now we're, we're moving into the realm of speculation. Yeah. I think we have to mention it. You can't leave it out of the Agreed. discussion. Another thing that Madeline Brown did that is fishy to me mm-hmm. is she hooked up with Billy Solestes. Mm. And they did a lot of dog and pony show. They did a lot of television shows, radio shows. And he is a true liar. So he really was a liar. We can prove that easily, easily. He just said anything that he felt like saying. Joan, you worked also with Jim Garrison very intensely. What did Jim think of the Madeline Brown story? Did he give it credence? No. Not at all. Now, Jim Garrison, see, I I only started, I knew Jim Garrison, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't writing my book then. Right. No, of course not. So I only knew, so I started my book in 1997. Garrison died in 1992, around the time of the release of the film, of the Oliver Stone film. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I I can't. I, well, Johnson uh, Garrison hated Johnson, but the reason he hated Johnson was because he didn't release the documents. Because Garrison was a great student of the Warren Report and the Warren Commission exhibits, and he studied that intensely. Remember that he began his investigation by looking at Dean Andrews' testimony to the Warren Commission that a person named Clay Bertrand had called him on the Saturday after the Kennedy assassination, asked him to come down to Dallas to represent. Lee Harvey Oswald, whom he had already represented in, in his case against the Navy, in his discharge against mm-hmm. the Navy. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and Garrison then first, well, I think among maybe the first witness that Garrison saw was Dean Andrews. So uh, Johnson wasn't in the forefront of uh, Garrison's interest, although he, he didn't like him. He didn't think he was honest. He, and of course, the, uh, the thing that bothered a lot of people, maybe today, the younger people don't feel that way. The the, the, the travesty of Vietnam, mm. the horror of the that that uh, the bombing and the and uh, and Johnson is right in the middle of that. And it has to be said for President Kennedy mm-hmm. that every if you look in Gordon Goldstein's book Lessons, God Lessons of Disaster, I think it's called. It's the bio, it's the autobiography of George Bundy written by his a student after his death, Lessons in Disasters. Anyway, he describes how every day Kennedy's cabinet, that included Rusk and McNamara and George Bundy himself, were asking him to send ground troops to Vietnam. And he, they were asking, just send two, just send a hundred, just send. The, the key was to, that he should send ground troops. And he, never, and he we resisted every single one of them. Is there a, power, a parallel there to be learned that maybe Mr. Obama learned as well? Because everybody's bugging him right now to send troops over to Syria. 
Obama, I, I, you're Canadian, so you're free from any of, the, of this. Obama was used murder. We're, you know, one of the people at uh, at the Billy Celeste's grand jury uh, 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 that I talked about where he testifies, somebody said, this is the first time a president, that meaning Johnson, has been accused of murder, meaning, uh, you know, the Henry Marshall and all of that. Yeah. Now, in the Obama case, sending he has targeted various individuals that he thought were al-Qaeda's or whatever he thought they were. They hadn't committed any crime at the time. American citizens... And he sent drones and killed them, and also their children. One of them, in that case of Anwar Awaki, they killed his son with a drone. Now, surely his son hadn't, whatever, hadn't done anything, and his cousin, and you know, that's a murder. That's murder. This man has committed murder, and not only that, he has been the worst president we've ever had for transparency and for civil liberties. And when, I mean, this seems not important today. There were various photographs of Abu Ghraib that had not been released. And the Second Circuit, the Court of Appeals, uh, uh, ruled to have that they can be, they, the ACLU brought the case, that they can be, they should be released. And he said, I'll do it over my dead body, over your dead body. Well, he leaned on the court, that, that court, to the extent that they never released the phone. What, what, why, is, why is the president involved with releasing photographs? What is the, he's yeah, just, what's going on there? this man, it doesn't seem like he's all there. I don't think he is rep- making his own decisions. If you don't, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. <laughs> but one of the things when you start working with Garrison and Gar- the Garrison mm-hmm. case, Garrison looked at Oswald and said he doesn't know anyone who wasn't with CIA. That was Garrison's first reaction, and he, then he started to show Ferry Shaw. And you know, years later, after Garrison's death. I was able to put in the update to A Farewell to Justice, a document that was released by the CIA's History Review Group. And that group, they were looking at various documents from the HSCA, and they said that Shaw, Clay Shaw, was a highly paid contract source of CIA. Highly, keywords are highly paid. Mm. He wasn't just somebody debriefed when he took a trip or anything like that. He was a source of theirs, an asset of theirs. So Garrison was right. I have to, and, and you know, even today, as time goes by, you rarely hear Garrison's name. You don't hear it in conferences so much, unless I'm there, or, or uh, maybe Oliver Stone, of course. But even you don't hear it. You know, they, 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 people distance themselves. People who are dealing with the mater- the New Orleans material. Why is that? Why are they distancing in this? Because they're that? so despised by CIA, who have gotten all their media forces mm-hmm. marshaled against Garrison, that it, that it will splash off on the writers, and that they will be denied reviews in the New York Times, Washington Post. They'll be attacked. They'll be they'll be isolated. No one wants to talk to them because Garrison's name is mud, mm. anathema. So, but I don't care for some, I don't know how, why, it just so happens I don't. And then maybe because I knew him and I feel sorry for him and everything that he went through. And I, uh, I don't really, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need a new a review I don't, or whatever. Farewell to Justice is the book you wrote on Jim Garrison, That's which it. is groundbreaking. Absolutely groundbreaking. By the Thank way, you. folks, uh, Joan Mellon tonight, www.nightfrightshow. Just click on all her book covers. And there shall be plenty there for you to pay, to uh, click on. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. Amazing researcher, groundbreaking researcher, 
And when it comes to materialism. Faustian bargains. Faustian bargains. That's the new book. It has Johnson, sinister, and then cut into his face is a photograph of Mac Wallace and all the fingerprints all around him. So what are these fingerprints? Then you read the book and you find out about the fingerprints. Okay, I've got to ask you this big question, too, because I'm looking at the time. Johnson have JFK killed? I'm trying. You see, I happen to believe that you must be able to prove. When I say those are not his fingerprints, Mac Wallace's fingerprints, I, I have digital, analytic, scientific. I can prove it. When we have Johnson and JFK, there's an alternate explanation. And that is that those who killed JFK kept Johnson out of the loop, except maybe for, with some foreknowledge, but kept him somewhat out of the loop so that he could have plausible deniability. He's the guy that's profiting from it. He becomes president of the United States, which is what he wanted all his life. And yet, yet he's free of the taint. He did what, and it, but he knew what he had to do. There's no doubt about that, because we have that famous quote that on Christmas Eve of after the Kennedy assassination, when Johnson turns to one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and says, just get me elected, meaning the 1964 election, and I'll give you your war. Give you your goddamn war. Yeah. He knew um, what he had to do. What always puzzled me, was he authentic in bringing all, in all those policies that were started under JFK? Uh-huh. Right away, civil rights. This is an important question. So now, the people who want to cover for Johnson, the biographers that want to say, "Well, it's balanced. It's this civil rights, and it's also the, the other, the, the mm-hmm. sister Johnson." But I don't think so. And I try to do as much research into the Civil Rights Act as I could. I found quotes from Johnson in which he uses the what they call the N word. I yes, I've heard I don't know if you saw the movie, the uh, the Great State of Jones. Yeah. This movie about the Civil War. I just and, saw it last night. Fantastic. I loved it. It's fantastic. And they, you notice that they use the language that we're not allowed to use. Yeah. You are, maybe you're in Canada. But it, oh, but no. they use it in the right way. They say, who is a nigger? It's not yes. anyone who's black or who was a slave. It's these people, who, these uh, uh, the white ruling class of the South and, and the planter class and the yeah. aristocracy. We recommend, both of us agree, and we we, we recommend that the great state of Jones, it's fabulous. It really is a great a movie. film critic. I've written seven books about movies, so I have some credibility in film analysis. <laughs> and uh, it's really uh, it's really worth seeing. I was dragged there, but it's really it's really worth seeing. Well, you've so, got to come back on. We'll talk film one night. How's that? Yes, absolutely. You have to, I have to prepare. But uh, you asked me if Johnson had Kennedy killed. We certainly can't. Now, look, we have the Madeline Brown. Yeah. We have that uh, early morning statement where he seems to have been prepared and know well in advance what he was going to do mm-hmm. as president. But I can't. You see, I have a lot of evidence of footprints of CIA in the New Orleans part of the story and the Oswald story. I cannot trace Johnson somehow to Clay Shaw and David Ferry. Okay. And I, I have Ferry with, and Shaw with Oswald. There's no doubt about that. I can prove that, which was a big, Garrison had a hell of a time trying to prove that. But we can prove that. We have evidence. We have other evidence of CIA in Thomas Edward Beckham and his relation with CIA, Fred Lee Chrisman. We have a lot of garrison evidence. I can't, and the people who would push the Johnson story sometimes say, this is a, this is a Texas story. This is a Texas murder. It's an example of Texas justice. 
Well, it's not, it can't be only a Texas story. We've got to be able to c- connect all of those. Yeah, you see, I was always curious, too, why Johnson would put himself in the line of fire. Because when you've got a, a bunch of assassins, the way they assembled in Dealey Plaza, you never know where those bullets are going to go. And I was always curious why he would put himself in the line of fire. And then the other thing I was curious about that I just asked you is, why would he champion all those great policies that were started under JFK? And we had talked about this off air as well. Um, I had mentioned I had met up with Ted Sorensen and, and how Ted told me that Johnson gave him, as he called it, the Johnson treatment. And, you know, JFK's up there right now looking down right at us. We need you so much to continue his legacy. That's the Johnson treatment. I knew no Sorensen. I knew Sorensen a little bit. Did you really? Yeah. did a party. There's Sorensen across the table. So I'm still talking about John F. Kennedy, and I'm saying, you know, I was really disappointed because he had promised to desegregate federally sponsored housing when he became president, and he didn't. And I say this, and Ted Sorensen follows me into the living room after dinner, and he says he was going to. Ah, Sorensen told me he was a little upset with uh, Kennedy that he was too he felt he was too slow on civil rights okay good fair, fair enough so but he, fair enough now I asked both Sorensen and Arthur Schlesinger who do they think killed President Kennedy what was their response now Sorensen wouldn't answer at all and I also asked Sorensen uh, the source of the quote that is was given in the New York Times where Kennedy says I'll tear the CIA in a thousand pieces and throw it to the wind it's there without a source and so I asked Sorensen, did, who said that? Did, uh, did, who heard, did Kennedy say that? Did anyone hear him say that? I never heard of it. Huh. Now, could be lying, could be lying. Now I asked Schlesinger, or actually I had an intermediary. I'm like Johnson. I had an intermediary because he was mad at me for another book that I wrote. And so Schlesinger said, we were at war with the national security people. Holy cow. He didn't say Texas, Johnson, and that whole thing. So, and the likelihood that Johnson would expose himself, it's given, if you look at his whole history, if you read Faustian Bargains, you see all the devilish things he did. One of the things he did, by the way, that I found in 1967, he was going to run for office again, remember, in 68. Then he put his brother, Samuel Houston Johnson, mm-hmm. Sam Houston Johnson, into a hospital. He wasn't sick. He was just to keep him out of the way so he wouldn't talk to the press or talk to anyone. And the source for that is a good one. It's a doctor at the hospital named Dr. Samuel Axelrad, who saw him there. He said he used to come down from his room to to meals, didn't talk to anyone, and went back upstairs. And he lived there for about a year. Now, Dr. Axelrad, it was a military hospital. Dr. Axelrad was doing his military service uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. and he was a urologist, I think. And uh, he just told me this. And then someone else I know saw Samuel Houston Johnson on a plane, sat next to him on a plane. And he said that the brother said that Lyndon Johnson was the meanest man he ever saw. Holy cow. So the brother was too talkative. Johnson was right to stash him away because uh, he was a talker, as was Josefa. Joan, we have a caller. Um, he's your friend and mine, Alan Dale. Alan? Hi, Dale. I'm here. 
Would you like to ask some questions to Joan? Uh, Here's what I want to do. I don't want to detract, and I certainly don't want to impose. I don't want to take up time where we could be listening to Professor Mellon. Uh, I want to refer very briefly to a couple of things. The first is that Faustian bargains, Lyndon Johnson and Mac Wallace in the robber baron culture of Texas has a scheduled publication date of September 13th, but it is available right now for pre-order. And I want to propose that everyone with any kind, any level of interest in these related complexities associated with the study of President Kennedy's assassination should do exactly that. And while they're at Amazon, they should be aware that in 2005, Professor Mellon produced arguably the definitive book on Jim Garrison, A Farewell to Justice. It was updated for a 2013 edition. Uh, In 2012, she produced a book called Our Man in Haiti, George DeMoran Schilt and the CIA in the Nightmare Republic. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. And in February of this year, 2016, uh, her book, The Great Game in Cuba, CIA and the Cuban Revolution, was updated for 2016 edition. These are, I'm cautious about epistemology. I'm careful about what I address and what I um, compliment and what I endorse, I consider these to be absolutely essential materials, and I'm hopeful that others will feel the same. I didn't, I didn't ask him to do that. I just want to say, Alan Dale is the sweetest thing, but that wasn't prompted by me. Uh, the only other thing I want to address very Is that the check you got from her today, Alan? No, no, no. I, uh, no, I can't be bought. The only to thank you. <laughs> I can't be bought, I assure you, but you're welcome. The other thing that is of slight concern to me, Professor, and I don't want you to be alarmed, but I've noticed that there seems to be someone behind you, so I've taken the liberty of notifying the authorities. They should be there very soon, so don't be concerned. <laughs> That's my house guest, Ralph Stoneman. There you go. I'm glad to know. Anyway, it's an honor to get to hear you speak. I'm very grateful to you for your invaluable, uh, unsung, heroic work in the related areas pertaining to our mutual interest. And God bless you. I mean it sincerely. Thank you, Alan. No one is sweeter than you. Take care. In the whole field. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. That was beautiful. Okay, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but what were the epiphanies that you came across? Because there's a thousand and one other books of okay consisting of Johnson and the assassination. And we didn't mention this. There was a ship called the USS Liberty, a spy ship that was uh, a United States ship that was in place that was placed in the East Mediterranean in. At the time of the Six Day War, June 1967, yeah. and uh, the ship was hit. Uh, I would say it was it was attacked by un- unmarked planes, and uh, all the antenna it was a spy ship, so there were 45 antenna on deck and a big dish, and all, everyone was knocked out. But somehow, one of the sailors managed to get one transmitter going. And they send a distress call to the 6th Fleet, which was about 500 miles away, four to 500. And, that, and it goes through. And the admirals there, one of the, you know, most of the admirals, I won't say all, um, say immediately decide to launch planes to go and to say, help the Liberty. They're calling for help. We're being attacked. We're under attack. 
they were not U.S. was not in the Six Day War. Now it's in, in, so uh, uh, suddenly they get a telephone call from Robert McNamara, Johnson's Secretary of Defense, and he says, "Call back those planes." The admirals can't understand why uh, they think maybe they they think nuclear warheads are in there, so they they call back the, they and they send planes that are, cannot be configured for nuclear weapons. And McNamara calls back. I said, send back those, take, call back those planes. And then the, the admirals, Admiral Lawrence Geis, he says, I'm not going to listen to this. He's just a, a hired hand, right, or McNamara. And Johnson grabs the telephone and says, call back. The, I don't care if everyone on that ship drowns or the ship sinks. And this is a direct quote. I will not embarrass an ally. Mm-hmm. How does he know that it was Israel that attacked the ship? And I and I, my theory is, as I'm writing a book about it, is that it was a collaboration. The attack on the USS Liberty was a collaboration between the United States and Israel, between the Mossad and CIA. And the motive was something that they had for a decade before to topple Nasser in Egypt. And uh, that's uh, now look at Johnson's role there, because it's against the military code to leave people in harm's way. To leave people out there to be killed, it's it's an act of, it's a war crime, as defined in Nuremberg. And so the sailors put a um, petition for war crimes to the Department of the Army, which is where you do it, and they just said that we have no interest in this. And they've never, no investigation has ever been held, but one, which was a false investigation forged at the time of the attack, and nothing in the 50 years that have ensued. So there's Johnson right in the middle of this. Hmm. And then he lied about it. He lied about how many people were killed. He lied about what he knew. He, he lied and lied and lied and lied. And you can really see, here's Johnson caught out. They had hoped that the ship would sink. Egypt would be blamed. And then they could go there and bomb Cairo. And we had planes on the way to Cairo sent by the Sixth Fleet. That's why I say one of the admirals knew. He, knew he had foreknowledge of the whole business. And then they had to be called back. Because once that SOS went out, once Israel was exposed as having attacked liberty, it's obvious it was a pretext to blame Egypt. They could, they decided not to go through with it. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. Johnson. And this is not known because I didn't know a person. During the course of my investigation of Johnson, somebody said to me, what about the USS Liberty? I never heard of it. Well, many people have not heard of it somehow. And, uh, and then I investigated and I really got into it so much I realized it's going to be a book. But I put it as a long chapter in this book because I really you can't I don't think you could discuss Johnson's presidency mm-hmm. without discussing the USS Liberty. Yeah, there was a great deal of Soviet influence folks on Nasser and Egypt and the United States I think was a little bit nervous, you know, because let's face it that's why we went into Vietnam because of the fear of spread of communism. There was the whole Cuba thing a few years before that, afraid of the spread of communism. And, um, you know, some people think the Six-Day War was was initially started by the Soviet Union, giving false intelligence information to Nasser. So Nasser would react against that. And then, of course, it would escalate. And then the uh, Israelis would react against that and up and up and up and up. And then you've got the two superpowers once again with everybody's lives at stake jockeying for power. Soviets right out there. They had 20 ships in the East Mediterranean, nuclear submarine. They had the orders. The orders to the, the Soviet submarine was only if we bomb Cairo, do they they going to bomb Israel? But only as a reaction what to a bombing box. Cairo. 
So if we had bombed Cairo, then the Soviets would have bombed. They had they, they didn't have the range, so they were going to go to something called the Temple of the Rockets, where Muhammad went up to heaven. Uh, yeah, I've heard of that place. Golden Temple or Golden Dome, and that's where. The, and and because they we didn't those planes did not bomb Cairo, as I, even though they were on their way, very short, they were almost there. The Soviets did not retaliate. So I don't know if we, who's the aggressor here. Yeah. The, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when they heard about the attack on Liberty, they were going to bomb Haifa. And where the, that was the place where the torpedo boats took off that bombed the Liberty, which one torpedo hit yep. at 40 foot hole. And it's, uh, it's a miracle that it didn't sink. Really yep. is. It's a tribute yes. to the expertise of the U.S. Navy that he got, had kept that ship. It was kept, you know, sort of listing nine degrees and it was all the water is rushing in and, uh, the, and they managed to stay, stay afloat and go to Malta and and then come back to the United States. But they, thank God, thank God. So many died anyway. Many I died. Know they did. Four yeah. died, and I think more than 174 uh, injured, and many have illnesses all their lives. They've lived now that's many years have passed. And Joan, um, we've got to wrap up. I'm yeah. afraid. Thank you so much for coming on the show, folks. Joan Mellon, of course. Uh, all her books will be there. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book covers. Order them from the comfort of your own home. Uh, Joan, thank you so much. When your next book's out, don't be shy. Come on on. Thank so you. you. You got a home here, my friend. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate it. Okay. And uh, to echo Alan's sentiments, God bless. Zygesund. Same. Oh, <laughs> same to you. I'm Jewish, too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye now. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you all later. Witness accounts for yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. <laughs>